How do you get to heaven? That was a question that was asked of a Sunday school teacher in one of his classes. And he told this story that, uh, that happened to him. So he said to the children, If I sold my house and my car, had a big garage sale, gave all my money to the church, would that get me into heaven? No, the children all answered. If I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? Again, the answer was no. Well, then, if I was kind to animals, gave candy to all the children, loved my wife, would that get me into heaven? Once more, they all said no. Well, he continued thinking they were a little bit more theologically sophisticated than he gave them credit for. said, well, then, how can I get into heaven? And the five-year-old boy shouted out, you got to be dead. (laughs) Well, then there was the exasperated mother whose son was always getting into trouble and finally asked him, how do you expect to get into heaven? Boy thought it over and said, well, I'll run in and out and keep slamming the door until St. Peter says, for heaven's sake, Dylan, come in or stay out. (laughs) And then it was uh, Woody Allen who said, It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, it's good to be here with you all today and enjoy this space. I remember uh, being here for the dedication some years ago. In fact, I remember some of your previous spaces, and this is a marvelous improvement. (laughs) My uh, interest in today's uh, subject came about in large part because of my uh, mother, whose life came to a close. Um, She died of Alzheimer's, and as you know, that takes a year or two. And I was fortunate to be able to be with her for a good bit of those two years before her death. And we had many conversations about her eventual passing and legacy. During that time, I asked around for some advice, and one of several suggestions was a short book called A Year to Live, This was by a psychiatrist and Buddhist teacher called Stephen Levin. Uh, The book was subtitled, How to Live This Year as If It Were Your Last. He assumes you have one year to live and asks, what would you do or not differently? Well, he's been a practitioner and leader of healing and meditation, and he found from many interviews that all that those who had... uh, fully open to life, say they would do things differently if they left just one more year to live. Some said they would change their work situation, uh, quit jobs or reduce hours, maybe add a long-admired skill. The point is that most of us, when presented with this idea, would do things differently, would to some degree change our lives. Here's one reflection written by Nadine Stair. She was 85 at the time. If I had my life to live over, I dare to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I would limber up. I would be sillier than I have been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, 
I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I try to have nothing else. Just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those people who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. Stephen Levin says, when death, the big wind blows out our birthday candles, only the wish remains. And only that longing which deepens our wisdom and compassion will be of much use. He thinks we fear we're not up to the task and begin to wonder how we might cram for death. We pray that God grades on a curve, but death is not a test. It is only another opportunity to enter life wholeheartedly. One person on receiving the bad news said, As what the doctor said really sank in, I could feel something very heavy begin to lift. I felt as though I was free to leave my life at last. Bizarrely, life never felt so safe. Maybe I'm crazy, but I felt more freedom and love than I had in some time. In fact, I felt not as though my life was being taken away, but as though it had been given back to me. I was going to die, and my life was completely my own. Forrest Church said, Religion is the human response to the certainty of our deaths. Socrates thought we should always be occupied in the practice of dying. Native Americans say, Today is a good day to die, for all the things in my life are present. In Buddhism, death is gentler, says a monk. It is symbolized by a teacup that is not smashed, just turned upside down. Stephen Levin recommends life review and death preparation with meditation. So please join me now in a meditative spirit. In this moment, we can only scratch the surface, so try this on your own when you have more time. Close your eyes. Think of people who are close to you. See yourself expressing gratitude. Thank them. Thank them again. And as the memory dissolves, bid them farewell. Now consider those we need to forgive. Bring to mind those we feel have hurt us. Speak to them of our feelings and listen to their response. One 30-year-old man dying of leukemia put it this way, I don't think people are afraid of death. What they are afraid of is the incompleteness of their life. The hymn Spirit of Life was first written as a prayer. Please remain seated and sing number 123, Spirit of Life. Mm -hmm. 
So there was the uh, minister waiting in line to have his car filled with gas just before a long holiday weekend. The attendant worked quickly, but there were many cars ahead of him in front of the service station. Finally, the attendant motioned him toward a vacant pump. Reverend, said the young man, sorry about the delay. It seems as if everyone waits until the last minute to get ready for a long trip. Minister chuckled and said, I know what you mean. It's the same in my business. Then there was that American philosopher, Yogi Berra, who said, Always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. (laughs) And a recently spotted bumper sticker, What if the hokey pokey really is what it's all about? For some, a legacy might be a last will and testament. One was that of Benjamin Franklin. It went on for many pages, and his will was quite specific and listed specific monies and personal items that were to go to designated people and institutions. It described his interest in giving back to those institutions he'd benefited from in order that others might do likewise. Then he had second or third thoughts and added a codicil which wrote several more pages. Well, here's a brief excerpt from the codicil to his last will and testament. I, Benjamin Franklin, in the foregoing or annexed last will and testament named, having further considered the same, do think proper to make and publish the following codicil or addition thereto. It having long been a fixed political opinion of mine that in a democratical state there ought to be no offices of profit. For the reasons I have given in an article of my drawing in our Constitution, it was my intention when I accepted the office of president to devote the appointed salary to some public uses. Accordingly, I had already, before I made my will in July last, given large sums of it to colleges, schools, and the building of churches. Well, I can't let that part about building churches go without noting that if the building of churches is to be part of your legacy, I should mention Chalice Keepers, which is the Joseph Priestley District program, which has as its primary purpose helping congregations buy land and construct buildings. Chalice Keepers is the planned giving companion program to Chalice Lighters, one that has been in our district for more than 20 years and supports many congregations, including this one, over the years. And the Unitarian Universalist Association has an umbrella giving program that allows the donor to make a bequest, either a specific amount or an estate percentage, with a specific uh, distribution provision which the UUA will perform. For example, X percent to my church, Y percent to my district, Z percent to the UUA, and so on. We advocate for an estate tithe, which is to say 10% of one's estate to be divided among selected charities. Um, Did Joan arrive yet? I guess not. Yes, she is. Joan, are you around somewhere? Probably out setting up for lunch. Well, anyway, if you see Joan, she's from the uh, district staff, who is an expert in all of this uh, information, and ask her after the service about that. Anyway, so back to... Ben Franklin. 
In that codicil, he goes on to redirect funding for one public works project he once envisioned, but now sees as impractical and concludes with this. It has been an opinion that he who receives an estate from his ancestors is under some kind of obligation to transmit the same to their posterity. This obligation does not lie on me, who never inherited a shilling from any ancestor or relation. The above observation is made merely as some apology to my family for making bequests that do not appear to have any immediate relation to their advantage. Gerontologist Robert Butler puts it this way, you have a sense of legacy. It's important to leave something. Most often, legacy is a testament to struggle. You make your own and transform it into something that will help others with their struggle in the future. In one of his uh, books, Stephen Covey writes about four human needs, to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. And the need to leave a legacy is our spiritual need to have a sense of meaning, purpose, personal congruence, and contribution. One of my favorite stories is about the concert violinist Itzhak Perlman. And it goes something like this. Uh, Back in November of 95, he performed at the Lincoln Center in New York City. And as you may know, he had polio as a child and walked with uh, braces and crutches. So the audience had to wait while he made his way across the stage to sit down and remove the braces and got set to begin the performance. Finally, when he was ready, the conductor nodded and they began. Well, as he finished the first few bars, the local music critic recalls, one of the strings on his violin broke. You could hear it snap going off like gunfire across the room and no mistaking what that meant. Yeah, it was obvious he'd have to put down the violin, replace his braces, pick up the crutches, get on his feet, go off stage, get another violin, tune it up, and so forth. But he didn't do that. He closed his eyes and then signaled the conductor to begin again. Well, everyone knows it's impossible to play a symphonic work with just three strings. I know that, you know that, but that night he refused to know that. You could see him modulating, changing, and recomposing the piece in his head. At one point, it sounded like he was detuning the strings to get sounds from them they had never made before. And when he finished, the audience rose as one, screaming and cheering, doing all they could to show how much they appreciated his work. And then he motioned for them to to sit and said, you know, Sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music he can still make with what he has left. And isn't that our task as well? To find out how much music we can still make with what we have left. Well, we're about to hear music that reminds me of a legacy that all of us can leave, our family history. Before my mother died, she gave me a list of immediate family, maybe 15, 20 names, and encouraged me to see what else I could find out. Well, now in the days of the internet, this is a whole lot easier than what it uh, used to be. And I was able to construct a genealogy that spanned 12 generations and 500 people. 
One in particular was my father's mother, born Nora Mahoney. Her grandparents came to America during the Irish potato famine. She was the eldest of 14 children. Her mother died giving birth to the 14th, and they both died the same day. Nora became the mother that raised them. One brother, Daniel, died at the age of one month. Ten years later, another brother was given the same first name. Her father's name was Daniel. She didn't have time to marry until age 38 and then acquired a brother-in-law, Daniel. Her only child, my father, was named Daniel. My brother is Daniel. My son is Daniel. This was Nora Mahoney's favorite song. It was Emily Dickinson who wrote, Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. But Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. (laughs) And Mark Twain wrote, Let us endeavor to live that when we come to die, even the undertaker will be sorry. Another view from John Updike. It came to me the other day, were I to die, no one would say, oh, what a shame, so young, so full, of promise, depths unplumbable. Instead, a shrug and tearless eyes will greet my overdue demise. The wide response will be, I know, I thought he died a while ago. (laughs) For life's a shabby subterfuge and death is real and dark and huge, the shock of it will register nowhere but where it will occur. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on Death and Dying said, For someone who has not first loved, death will always be too soon. Whereas for those who have entered into life's energies, which very much include love, that fear doesn't exist. A year before he died, Steve Jobs said, Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one's ever escaped it. And that is as it should be because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. You're much richer than the sum of your material assets, yet your legal will only addresses the question, what do I want my loved ones to have? One form a legacy might take is what's called an ethical will, the Jewish custom of leaving a written spiritual legacy for one's children. One rabbi puts it this way, parents write a letter to their children in which they would try to sum up all that they had learned in life and in which they would try to express what they wanted most for and from their children. 
They leave these letters behind because they believe that the wisdom they had acquired was just as much a part of the legacy they wanted to leave their children as were all their material possessions. An ethical will is not an easy thing to write. One must look inward to see what are the essential truths one has learned in a lifetime. An ethical will is not an easy thing to receive. There is the temptation, an almost irresistible one, for parents to try to persuade after death what they were unable to persuade during life. An ethical will is a personal legacy, the letter that transmits the non-material assets that are also of great importance, your values, your story, the lessons life has taught you. Not everyone can pass along a financial legacy, but everyone can transmit some of the richness of life by creating an ethical will. Here's what one man said on receiving one. About 10 years ago, I visited my parents in Florida soon after my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. I asked him two questions. Dad, is there anything you haven't done that you'd like to do while you are still feeling okay? He replied, just to have another 10 or 15 years of retirement. We both smiled, a half smile, hoping that this would be true, while being realistic that this was unlikely to happen. My second question, Dad, at some point, would you write a letter to me that talks about things that have been important to you in your life? He thought that was a strange request. He was never much of a letter writer. He said he would think about it. Eight months later, about a month before he died, he sent me the letter I had asked for. He wrote about the importance of working hard, being honest, his children getting the education he never had, helping others in need, and sticking by your family. The memories of my father come flooding back whenever I read this letter. Although it's only a couple of handwritten pages long, it's a precious gift whose value can't be quantified. I now know that what my father wrote to me, the legacy of his values, was his ethical will. I should also add that with newer technologies, many people now live such ethical messages in an audio and or video format. One good example of an ethical will is found in the last will and testament of Mary McLeod Bethune, born in uh, July of 1875 in South Carolina. She was one of the 17 children, former slaves. She worked in the cotton fields with her family, married Albertus Bethune and had a son. Uh, she founded what is now Bethune Cookman, College in 1904 and served as its president for almost 40 years. She had many other positions, including NAACP vice president. She died in 1955. Her ethical will was written for her people. The custom at the time was to call them Negroes, but I feel it speaks to all of us. Here are some excerpts. I leave you love. Love builds. It, it is positive and helpful. It is more beneficial than hate. Injuries quickly forgotten, quickly pass away. Loving your neighbor means being interracial, interreligious, and international. I leave you hope. 
Yesterday, our ancestors endured the degradation of slavery, yet they retained their dignity. Today, we direct our economic and political strength toward winning a more abundant and secure life. Tomorrow will be a better world. I, this I believe with all my heart. I leave you the challenge of developing confidence in one another. As long as we are hemmed into racial blocks by prejudice and pressure, it will be necessary to band together for economic betterment. Economic separatism cannot be tolerated in this enlightened age. I leave you a thirst for education. Knowledge is the prime need of the hour. I leave you respect for the uses of power. We live in a world which respects power above all things. Power intelligently directed can lead to more freedom. Unwisely directed, it can be a dreadful, destructive force. It has always been my first concern that power should be placed on the side of human justice. I leave you faith. Faith is the first factor in a life devoted to service. Without faith, nothing is possible. With it, nothing is impossible. I leave you dignity. I want us to maintain our human dignity at all costs. We must make an effort to be less race conscious and more conscious of individual and human values. If I have a legacy to leave my people, it is my philosophy of living and serving. As I face tomorrow, I am content, for I think I have spent my life well. I pray now that my philosophy may be helpful to those who share my vision of a world of peace, progress, brotherhood, and love. A legacy embodies your strengths, your purpose, and it makes your spiritual gift to coming generations. Then you have to let it go. A legacy is a gift with its own destiny. In the face of mortality, you give up control and put your faith in the future. W.H. Auden said it more simply, if we really want to live, we'd better start at once to try. If we don't, it doesn't matter, but we'd better start to die. Well, we've reached the point for more or less famous last words, and here are some, more or less in rhyme. It's all been very interesting, declared Lady Wortley Montague. Examining his sick room, Oscar Wilde railed, either that wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> Told the angels were waiting for him, Ethan Allen quipped, let him wait. I am so very happy, Gerard Manley Hopkins cooed. Goethe pleaded for more light, more light. Madame de Pompadour cried out to God, wait a minute, and rouged her cheeks red. I suppose I am turning into a god, the dying emperor of Aspasian said. Henry James succumbing to a massive stroke, so it has come, the distinguished thing. Pancho Villa pleaded, don't let it end like this. Tell him I said something. <laughs> Gertrude to Alice B., what is the answer? In that case, what is the question? 
If this is dying, I don't think much of it, muttered Weifenstrati, when undone. Julius Caesar managed et tu brute. Edmund Keane, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> Chekhov, it's been so long since I've had champagne. Goethe, more light, more light. Then departed. Finally, there was a man who had worked all of his life and was a real miser when it came to his money. He loved mourning more than anything, and just before he died, he said to his wife, Now listen, when I die, I want you to take all my money and put it in the casket with me, because I want to take my money to the afterlife with me. And so he got his wife to promise him with all of her heart that when he died, she would put all the money in the casket with him. Well, one day he died. Stretched out in the casket, the wife was sitting there in black and her friend was sitting next to her. When they finished the ceremony, just before the undertaker got ready to close the casket, the wife said, wait, just a minute. She had a box with her. She came over with the box and put it in the casket. Then the undertakers locked the casket down, rolled it away, and her friend said, Girl, I know you weren't foolish enough to put all that money in there with that man. She said, Listen, I can't lie. I promised him that I was going to put his money in that casket with him, and that's just what I did. Her friend was amazed. You mean to tell me you put all his money in the casket with him? I sure did, said his wife. I wrote him a check. Your uh, checks and cash will now be gratefully received for the <laughs> ongoing work of this congregation. <laughs>